James chapter 1, that's where we'll begin. Um, Just a quick review from last week. Um, Of course, our verse that we we start this with every time is, Open thou mine eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of thy law, Psalm 119.18. Today we finished our study of this book in my Bible class. And uh, the last slide that they saw was the first slide that they saw, which was this one. Open thou mine eyes, that I may behold wondrous things out of thy law. May God help us every time we open this book for it to be a transformational experience. Is it always? Not that we can perceive I do believe that any time you open the book that God's doing something in your heart, whether you perceive it or not, God's word doesn't come back void. So you don't always perceive it, but it should always do something. Um, We're moved into application now. We talked about observation. What does the word say? Interpretation. What does it mean? And now application, what does it tell me to do? So what? And we've got to be careful because there's five general categories of things that we can do instead of application when we've studied the Word of God. First of all, there's interpretation instead of application. We just continue interpreting and continue interpreting, but never actually do anything with it. That's not good. And sometimes... Instead of substantive life change, we just have superficial obedience. Sometimes, instead of repentance, it's just rationalization. Sometimes, instead of a volitional decision to go in a direction God wants us to, we just revel in an emotional experience. And then, sometimes, instead of transformation, it's just communication. We're happy to tell others what the Word of God says but it bears no import for us. But now tonight, we're looking at lessons 40 and 41. And I don't, I don't know that lightning is going to strike twice on this, but without question, lessons 40 and 41, and in particular lesson 41, at least by my reckoning, was the most powerful lesson that we had in the teen class, in the, uh, the Bible class. Maybe that was just for me. Maybe, maybe I'm the only one that experienced that. I felt like they did too. Because I don't know of any other lesson that is, is more directly to the point of what I'm trying to do. And, and today, if I'm honest with you, as I, as I made my final preparations on my PowerPoint for this morning's class, I, I, I teach Bible a second hour, so I have an hour before to get my thoughts together and put things together and all that. And I found myself sad because I'm not ready to be done with this yet, with him yet. There's so much more we want to talk about and dig into. And though we will go on to other things that are just as important, just as good. I reminded them today that as much as I want them to succeed academically and athletically and as far as their work in the community and setting themselves up for their vocation, whatever that may be, more than anything... 
I want them to love and obey God's word. And if a kid can come through granite and leave here without loving God's word, at least to some level, something in them that wants to obey God's word, man, I've failed them in the worst kind of way. And that's my heart for you as well. There's folks in here that have been saved longer than me. You've been studying the Bible for years. Frankly, you probably don't need this as much as maybe somebody else that never got the, the opportunity for this kind of training. But it is, it is such a burden for me that individual Christians know how to open this book and rightly divide it. We, I met a gentleman today who would claim Christ, but his understanding of Christ is badly marred by what his church teaches. How does that kind of thing happen? It happens because people don't know how to rightly divide the word of truth. The Bible can be used for very evil things when it's misused. And it's so important that we as Christians know how to handle this sword. For ourselves, but also for others. So we're in James chapter 1. Verse 23, very familiar section of Scripture. I've still not gotten to where I can turn these pages fast. Verse 22, just for some context, but be doers of the word. And not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. For if any be a doer of the word, I'm sorry, hearer of the word, and not a doer, he's like unto a man beholding his natural face in a glass. For he beholdeth himself, and goeth his way, and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. But whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty, and continueth therein, he being not a forgetful here, but a doer of the word, of the work rather, this man shall be blessed in his deed. We begin tonight talking about truth that transforms. Father, would you help me to rightly divide your word of truth? I feel most uh, unworthy and most um, unable to begin to handle the vast treasures of your truth. And that's true every day of my life. And so we desperately need your Holy Spirit to teach us in all things tonight. 
and to apply your word. And may we leave here changed because of it. And may Jesus be lifted up. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Truth that transforms. We've read this passage and James likens God's word to a mirror. And of course, this perfect law of liberty would tell us that this is a perfect mirror. Not all mirrors are perfect, are they? Uh, in, in my bathroom, in my study, um, there's a medicine cabinet in the bathroom and it has three doors that open, you know, so it's a bigger mirror in the middle and two smaller mirrors. There's one mirror in particular that I like because that one mirror makes me look markedly thinner than the other two. It's interesting if you stand here, pretty accurate, stand here, pretty accurate, stand here, wow. We're not interested in mirrors that don't tell us the truth. We're interested in mirrors that are accurate, and the Word of God is the most accurate mirror there is, painfully so. And if we're to get the most out of God's Word as a mirror in that capacity, there's some steps that we have to follow in order for this truth to transform us. Number one, we need to come. We need to come to the mirror. A mirror that isn't used, a mirror that's not stood before, is of no use. You've got to come to it. Now remember this, when you're looking at the Word of God, there is only one proper and accurate interpretation. There can be many potential and, and, and plausible applications, but only one correct interpretation. But we're talking about application. You've got to come to the mirror. But then once you come to the mirror, um, there needs to be conviction. And conviction that is responded to. This is allowing the Holy Spirit through the word to point out what areas need work. You remember 2 Timothy 3.16? All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine. And then what? Reproof. And then correction. So what's reproof? If doctrine's what's right, reproof is what's wrong. And correction is how to get it right. Now those two in the middle, we don't like as much. We like doctrine, what's right, and we like instruction and righteousness, how to keep things right. But those two in the middle, what's wrong and how to get it right, those can be difficult. I have, my mirror is not the problem. Lately, as technology has gotten better, it's the lighting that hurts my feelings. It used to be that certain bulbs didn't reveal things, but now, LED and whatnot, I can see every blemish and every flaw. I'll tell you something else that has really been the bane of a lot of public personalities has been HD. Back in the old days, you could get away with very little makeup on TV because the picture is so grainy, and but now, oh my soul. Now, you can see, I remember the first HD TV we got. Crystal and I were, had just gotten married, and we, uh, we got DirecTV. No, no, we got Comcast. And the box they sent us was an HD box. It was a promotion. You can get HD programming for no extra cost for this amount. Of, hey, all right. You know, and at the time, we're, we're both, you know, working 
you know, full time, no kids to worry about or anything. We had a little bit of cash. We're like, yeah, let's get HD. That sounds good. But then I'm looking at the TV and I'm like, well, honey, this isn't any good. We got HD programming. Let's get an HD TV. So Black Friday, there we went. And I remember the first time I watched our local news and I'm like, that dude looks terrible. I never realized, you know. Are we prepared to accept what the mirror shows us? Now, conviction is one thing, but here's the next step, and these two go hand in hand. Convincing. Now, what's the difference? Conviction is seeing what's wrong. Convincing is being convinced that God's word displays the proper way to live. Let me put it another way. Conviction is this is what's wrong. Convincing is I am persuaded that what the word says has the power to fix it. All right, so you got all that. You got, you've come. You've been under conviction. There's a convincing there. All that's left is the conversion. That's the turning towards the proper way to live in light of what this mirror has showed you. So let me give you a quick example. If I'm endeavoring to lose weight, if I'm endeavoring to diet or something like that, the first thing I need to do is be willing to look in that mirror and accept what it shows. There it is. Ugh. Okay. Then conviction would be, am I moved by an honest assessment of what it shows? Now, there's some people, they could look in a mirror, and, and, and listen, this isn't about you know, body types or weight or anything, but, but you know whether or not you're the healthiest you could be. Okay? I, I don't care about what your shape is or your weight relative to this or that or whatever. I'm talking about, I'm looking at myself in the mirror, and I'm like, this is not the best me I could be. And my back certainly agrees. All right? Am I prepared to look in that mirror and say, that right there needs to change? Because if, if you look in the mirror and you can say, that ain't so bad, I'm good with that, then nothing's ever going to change. And maybe it doesn't need to. But I'm just saying, until you look and don't like what you see, nothing's going to change. The same thing is true spiritually. Until I don't like what I see, until it offends me that I'm this way, nothing's going to change. But then, the convincing Can I look at that mirror, see me as I am, and believe that mirror is also going to show me when I improve? I want to be super careful about how I handle this. There are a lot of people that are afflicted with eating disorders, and one of the problems with that is they cannot see the reality before them. Somebody who suffers from anorexia, it doesn't matter how much weight they lose, they look and they see, nope, not there yet. Now, that's really being simplified, but, but it, it's, it's, it's a disorder, and it's a terrible one. It's a sad one. But the same can happen to Christians. Some Christians can't see when they're not doing wrong, but some Christians can't celebrate when they're doing right either. I'm one of those Christians. I sometimes have a difficult time celebrating what the Lord is doing because I'm so fixated on something that's not going the way it should or something I still need to work on or something I'm still not what I should be and I can't get to ever to the convincing part. 
But all of that is for naught. You come to the mirror, you're convicted, you're convinced. All of that is for naught if you're not prepared to take action in conversion. You can look in the mirror all day long. If you don't change something, nothing's going to change. Right? That's me. Now let's look at this list again, but let's use Philippians 2.14. Okay? I'm going to look in the mirror of God's word, Philippians 2.14. Short verse that packs a wallop. You ready? Do all things without murmurings and disputings. That's complaining and grumbling. Don't raise your hand. How many of us can say, yes, I live this verse out. I do all things without murmurings or disputings. None of us can. So when we come to the mirror of God's word and we view this passage, we have to be ready to receive it's a message for me. When I read this, Philippians 2.14, I have to understand Paul is not just speaking to Philippian believers. God's Holy Spirit is speaking to me. Then comes the conviction when the Holy Spirit points out, do all things. I messed up and put everything here. Do all things. See, I have seasons where I'm very content. But can I say that I do all things without murmurings? And, nope. And that's where the Holy Spirit gets me. I said all things. Incomplete obedience is what? Disobedience, right? If we expect our kids to obey every time, anything short of that is what? Disobedience. So if I am ever complaining, if I'm ever murmuring, if I'm ever grumbling, if I'm ever disputing, then I am disobedient to this and conviction needs to set in. This is something I need to work on. Or more accurately, I need to allow the Holy Spirit to work on. Get out of the way. But then convincing. As I read this, am I convinced, am I persuaded that obeying the word of God is in my best interest? Spoiler alert, it is. And then conversion, I take steps to get this changed in my life. And so what do we see from this, this particular lesson? We see that the Word of God has all the potential in the world to transform us if we'll let it. But now, let's go to lesson 41. A transformed people. If you would, find 2 Corinthians 5.17. 2 Corinthians 5.17. Boy, we, we see this verse a lot. We reference this verse a lot as it, as it relates to people that have gotten saved and how there's a, a new life. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Now, I want to ask you a question. How many of you would say, man, when I got saved, everything changed? How many would say that? Everything? The truth is, there's a solid third of us that, I'm talking about a third of me individually, a third of who I am that did not change. Spirit changed. Soul changed. Flesh has not changed. 
But even, even when we look at this not as a right versus wrong thing, when you get saved, are there things about you that not only God doesn't change, he actually has always intended to use them for his glory? So if you're athletic, when you got saved, did you become unathletic? No. If you're very intelligent when it comes to academic things, when you got saved, did you all of a sudden not be able to write your name? No. Uh, if you have a sense of humor that's useful and helpful, and some of them aren't, but if you have a sense of humor that's useful and helpful and you got saved, did you lose that sense of humor? These are all things that God gave you, personality traits and abilities and gifts that not only they didn't go away, God intends to use them for his honor and his glory. So when we read this verse and say he's a new creature, we have to understand he's not saying that everything changes and nothing about you stays the same. That's not what he's saying at all. But he is saying God transformed you. God has changed some things about you. And it all comes down to old versus new. That word new there is an important, important word. Old versus new. This is where we use our tools, and we look to that word new. And what we find out is new comes from the Greek word kainos, which means fresh or unused. Fresh or unused. It's not the other word for new, neos. Does anybody recognize neos, neo, new evangelicalism? Neo-orthodoxy, neo-conservative. True? That is a word that's relative to time. A newborn that didn't exist there before. Now all of a sudden, here we have a new baby. No, this means something that existed before, but it's been freshened up. It's been changed. It's been transformed. That's the word that's being used here. God is not saying that he has, he has destroyed everything you were and recreated you. No, what he's done is he's taken what you were made to be and freshened it up to use for his honor and his glory. Now, if you would, go to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. And this is where we hit the brakes with the kids and just talked for a long time. I am, I am super careful in how I interact with young people in general and certainly ours of all ages. I, we live in a society that's growing increasingly wicked. Um, and I would never want anything to be thought of me that is untoward or anything like that. And for that reason... I don't compliment them as much as I maybe even should. But I made a point to take some time and tell them in class, and I mean it, I wouldn't say it if I didn't. Every one of those young ladies in our class are lovely. Every one of them. And that's not a general term meaning, you know, there's something about you that's special. You know, no, it, they are. They're lovely young ladies. And every one of our young men are solid guys that, that, you know, have all the potential in the world to be just, just real movers and shakers. I mean, we have got a great group of kids in that class. 
And I said that so that they would understand that what we're about to talk about has nothing to do with, you know, how well you put yourself together in the morning or, you know, how, what your BMI is or anything like that. And that. That's not at all what we're talking about. We're talking about the who that you are. And we looked at Ephesians 2.10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. And what we wanted to do was take everything that we had learned and break down this one verse to learn something about being a transformed people through the word of God. And the first word that we looked at was workmanship. There's so much to be gleaned from at least having an understanding of how to use the tools to dig into the original languages. Not just how they're used in scripture, but how they're used in everyday Koine Greek. The people that walked the streets of Thessalonica or Ephesus or whatever the case may be. What did these words mean to them? And when you use the word for workmanship, you found out that it had, it had two, two prongs to it. The first prong is this. They used it to describe masterpieces. So, could we say, for we are his masterpiece, created? No. Do you know why? Because that's not all it means. But it does mean that we are his masterpiece. And that's what I tried to get across to these young people. I am not so old that I don't remember the insecurities of youth. And part of the reason that I'm so acquainted with the insecurities of youth is because with me, now they've become the insecurities of my adulthood. Some of them never go away. I've given up trying to convince people that I am a marble icon that's got it all together. I don't have anything together. I've got insecurities eking out of me like you wouldn't believe. And these young people, and it's not just the girls. There, there are some exceptions. There are some guys that you run into, it is just evident, they just do not care what they look like. And that in and of itself is its own coping mechanism. I can never look as good as that guy or be as good, so why even try? But these kids, they, they spent enormous amounts of time, effort, and treasure on trying to look a certain way. We took Claire to the eye doctor today. Claire's getting glasses. She could not be more thrilled. She used to wear glasses that were not prescription glasses just so she could wear glasses. And, and by the way, I liked it better when she did that because those are a lot cheaper. And yes, I know about Zenny. Um, but I mean, she's standing there, and she is looking at this vast selection of glasses. And it appears as though she's following my vision path and not her mother's. So, But I'm going to tell you, 
This is going to be a long, arduous process to find the perfect pair of glasses. I am glad that I have nothing to do with it. She tried one on at the optometrist. What do you think, Dad? <laughs> no, no. And I told Crystal, you've got to fix that. You've got to get her thinking away from that. That looks like something my grandma Harriet would wear. No, just. Ugh. But I'm going to tell you, if one kid makes fun of those glasses, it's going to just tear her world all apart. Because that's how it is right now. These, these girls and other well, guys, too, pick themselves apart. And rather than seeing the loveliness and the beauty that's in front of them, all they can see is that one thing they don't want to see. I'm 48 years old and I still get zits. I'm not sure how that happens. And as soon as I said the word zit, it was just like, what are you talking about? Do I have a zit? No, I'm not saying that. But I realized I touched a nerve. When I was their age, and there I go, when I was your age, I had what was called cystic acne. It was bad. I had to take something called Accutane. Accutane is the strongest medicine you can take for this stuff. You had to take blood tests regularly. It's so strong that women were not even supposed to touch it if they were pregnant because it would cause birth defects. It was terrible. And it was, I had to put sunscreen on. I couldn't be out in the sun. and all. I mean, It was tough stuff. And it, it fixed it, but at quite a price. So I know what it is to hear the whispers and people make fun of you and things like that. I know. And I tried to get across to them what you can't see is that every one of you is a masterpiece created by God himself. Now this is going to get a little weird. So are all of you. We don't stop being a masterpiece just because we get older. God made every one of us. Now, here's where it really gets interesting. The word workmanship, one prong is a masterpiece, but it also implies something of utility. It means a masterpiece that also happens to be useful. Are there masterpieces that are not useful? Yeah. You go to Italy, you look up at the statue of David. What a masterpiece. Wow. And if we're honest, at its best, it's a paperweight. What are you going to do with it? Well, I, I glean a lot of inspiration from man's ability. No, no, no I'm, not talking about, I'm not talking about, oh, well, that's wonderful. I'm talking about what can you do with that thing? You can't even hang your coat on it. It's useless. Well, I'm not saying it's not wonderfully crafted art, but it's useless. But you see a masterpiece that has utility. 
that's useful, that has the potential to make substantive improvements to the lives of those around them. That's exactly what God is saying here. Not only are you a masterpiece of my creation, but you are useful to me. I explained to them about Frank Lloyd Wright. Frank Lloyd Wright, of course, a genius architect. And his, his designs, I happen to be a fan. And his designs of homes and buildings, I love the way that they're, they're, they're constructed. And they, a lot of times they're built into the serene, serenery, scenery around them and, and you know, into the sides of hills and waterfalls and all of that. They're beautiful. They're masterpieces. But they also happen to be really good houses that have utility. The Colossus at Rhodes, I'm sorry, the Lighthouse at Alexandria, rather, a masterpiece of architecture that also happened to be a really great lighthouse. You know, I wanted these kids to understand, and I want you to understand, whatever you see in the mirror, whatever you see in the mirror of God's word, don't forget that you are his workmanship, a useful masterpiece. But he goes on to say, created in Christ Jesus. Now, if it stopped right there, that'd be awesome. Where's workmanship created in Christ Jesus? That's great, but we have a purpose under good works. You are a masterpiece that is useful, and thus, I have a job for you to do. Now, these good works are not just, you know, helping ladies across the street and things like that. These are intrinsically good acts of eternal, of eternal value. God created you and created me as useful masterpieces for the purpose of doing things that change the world forever. I'm reading a book right now, and the, the title of the book is Seven. And it's a biography of seven different people that changed the world. Of the ones that I've read so far, I mean, like he talks about Pope John Paul II, and, uh, and, and he talks about a couple others. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer is one of them. But the one that most moved me so far, and I'm not done with the book yet, but the one that most moved me so far is William Wilberforce. William Wilberforce, a member of parliament, probably shortened his life with the stress of taking on all of England to eliminate the slave trade. And you know what? By God's help, he got it done. One man that decided this is what God wants me to do and wouldn't give up till he did it. Interestingly enough, he had a friend, almost like a, a, a godfather kind of relationship with a certain Anglican preacher in town named John Newton who wrote Amazing Grace, which in its, of itself is an amazing story. We've been created to do things of eternal value. We're talking about a transformed people. 
Oh, this is neat. Whereas workmanship, useful masterpieces, creating Christ Jesus unto good works, things of eternal value, which God hath before ordained. I've used this example a lot. Sadly, it didn't pan out the way we had hoped it would, but years ago, the Washington Redskins had the second pick in the NFL draft. And with that pick, they drafted Robert Griffin, quarterback out of Baylor University. Now, Mr. Griffin was not going to be part of the team until he did what? Sign the contract. That, 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 that is the sum total of my soteriology from Scripture. I believe that God has chosen everybody to be saved, but you're not saved until you choose to be saved. He wants you. He wants you, but you've got to sign on to the team. But then once you do, once you do, he already got plans for you. Do you think the Redskins signed Robert Griffin III and then said, okay, now what do we do with him? No. Okay, let's make him a linebacker. No. Let's make a wide receiver. No. They already planned he is going to be our franchise quarterback. Now, sadly, it didn't work out that way. First year looked great. Second year, not so much. But they had plans for him. That's exactly how God deals with us. And we know, Romans 8, that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to His purpose. For whom He did foreknow, He also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of His Son. Long before you prayed to receive Christ, long before you were born, long before your parents were born, God already ordained how he would use you. That's not Calvinism, that's Bible. God doesn't choose people to be saved and choose people to be lost. But has God already predestinated how he wants to use you? Yes. And the blanket way of saying that is he wants to use you by making you more like Jesus. But then he has specific things. And these good works, these works that have eternal value, God already had them lined up. What did he tell Jeremiah? Before I formed you in the belly, I knew you. That ought to be something that, that really makes us feel good, that God the Creator thought about us before we were ever born. Last word, that we should walk in them. The word walk means that's your lifestyle. We need to live in the understanding that we are a useful masterpiece that God has purposed before we were ever born to do things of eternal value. We ought to live our lives constantly in that understanding. Young people, you are not here to get the next iPhone. You are not here to be a mover and shaker and an influencer on social media. You are here. You were created as a useful masterpiece. And God, long before you were ever born, already ordained, this is how I want to use them to do things of eternal value. Now live like it. Because when you start digging into God's word with proper observation, interpretation, and application, it can't help but transform you. 
So what's the so what of the whole thing, of these whole two lessons? It's simply this. Be who you are. Who God made you to be. I told those young people, some of you are funny as all get out. That's fine. Then be the funny that God made you to be. Some of you are talented, and all of you are talented and gifted in something. Be that. But be the one that God made you to be. And the same lesson for us. We need to be the us that God made us to be. Now, can you be, at least in the world's eyes, successful without being who God made you to be? Yeah. What if God's intention for Elon Musk was that he be saved and surrender to ministry and be a preacher? What if he was meant to be a preacher in some small church out in the middle of nowhere, but instead he's a multi-billionaire, one of the most influential people in the world? If he's not who God made him to be, then he's not transformed. And that's something I really have to remind myself. Who God made me to be may not be somebody as influential as a Clarence Sexton. A lot of people are thinking about Dr. Sexton. He went home to be with the Lord yesterday. Man, what influence. Not just Temple Baptist Church, but the Crown College and all of their publishing and all of his preaching and everything. This guy's voice, he being dead, will still speak for years and years and That may not be what God wants me to be. You say, well, my neighbor has this, and my family member has that, and this is what we aspire to. No, all we aspire to is to be the who God made us to be. Easy preaching, hard living. Never be satisfied with less. Because I'm telling you, I've had glimpses, fleeting, but I've had glimpses, just moments, where I sensed I am exactly where I ought to be, doing exactly what I should be in this moment. In this moment, everything about me is pleasing to God right now. Well, I wish I could say it was constant. It's not because I'm me, and I fail Him all the time. But in those moments, that sweet spot of being the who that God made me to be, there is nothing like it. Nothing. And if I could borrow from Shakespeare, I wouldn't want to trade my place with kings if I could be right there. How do you get there? By letting yourself be transformed by the Word. So, Father, help us to do just that. 